Well, today we are finishing, I believe, the Gospel of Mark series. We've been in for quite some time. Um, and as I mentioned, it's very appropriate that we are celebrating the resurrection. So today's text starts in Mark 15, verse 40, and continues through 16, verse 8. You can read with me on the screen or encourage you to pull out your Bibles on the phone. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tombs. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Excuse me while I wrangle with this thing. Masks and uh, microphones, ear mics don't work well, very well together. You live and you learn, I guess. Didn't think about that this morning. Um, this first part is for the children uh, of the sermon. So if uh, I'd, I'd love to speak to the kids first. After the children's sermon, if you f- 
don't want to wrangle kids for the rest of the sermon, we will not be offended if you need to leave and, uh, and walk out. So please feel free to do that while I'm praying uh, after the children's sermon. Um, I hope my picture is going to be on the screen. Does anybody know what this is? Kids, you recognize that? A shark's tooth. Yeah, that's right. My, my son, Ren, found a shark's tooth when we were at Myrtle Beach uh, last month in June. He found one on the beach, and he was so proud of it. Um, and he loved that shark's tooth, didn't you, buddy? <laughs> but unfortunately, the day that we left the beach, uh, he forgot it. He left it in the condo, and so he lost it forever. And on the way home, he was so sad, so broken up over losing his shark's tooth. And um, he even said, this is the worst day ever. Have you ever felt that way? I want you to think about the, what's the worst day that you've ever had. If it was only because of a shark's tooth or a lost or broken toy, that's not that bad. That's pretty good. But maybe you've had worse things happen. Maybe you've broken a bone. Maybe you've lost someone. Someone's passed away. And that was the worst day ever. Do you remember the story of Joseph? We're going to talk about a different Joseph this morning, but I'm talking about the Joseph in the Old Testament, the one who was sold into slavery by his brothers. A lot of terrible things happened to him. He ended up in prison for doing the right thing. A lot of terrible stuff. But remember what happened to Joseph? He became very powerful in Egypt, and God used all the bad things that ever happened to him to do something really great. So Joseph ends up in Egypt and, and ends up becoming the reason that his brothers and his family, the people who sold him into slavery, that they become saved from the famine in the land. So God took all these terrible, terrible things that happened to Joseph and made something really incredible happen out of it. God can take the worst things that happen to us and make a really amazing things happen. In fact, God took the worst thing that's ever happened, the worst injustice of all time, and turned it around to become the greatest thing that's ever happened. Ever. When Jesus was killed by men who meant to hurt him, they didn't realize that they were actually fulfilling God's plan to save humanity. Jesus died on the cross even though he never did anything wrong. But he took our sins with him on the cross. And our sins died with him on the cross. And then what happened? He was buried, and then what? Yeah, he resurrected, that's right. His body, in fact, after the resurrection, when he came back to life, his body was even better than before, than before he was killed. And he made a way for us to be saved in that. So the worst thing that ever happened became the best thing that ever happened. Did you know that you were going to get new bodies too? Death is very sad. But God makes new life out of it. He makes, takes the worst thing and makes it good and uses it for our good. We get to be resurrected like Jesus. 
with even better bodies than we have right now. Bodies that won't grow old or get sick or get hurt, bones that won't break. And we get to spend forever with Jesus with those new bodies. We get to do that because Jesus did it first. He made the way for us. He took death, the worst thing, and made it the best thing, eternal life. So let me pray for our time this morning. Parents, if you need to take your kids out, then now's a good time to do it. Lord, thank you. Thank you for another day to live in this world that you created. Thank you for creating us, for loving us, and for making a way for us to spend eternity with you. Lord, give us ears to hear this morning. Speak to us through your spirit and your word. Amen. I can't tell you how good it feels to be up here, um, seeing actual faces in the congregation. I've been on this stage a few times the past few months, but it, it was an empty room. But most of our congregation is still not with us this morning, so those of you who've tuned in the live stream, I just want to say welcome, um, and I look forward to the time when we can all be here together. But I'm and I'm thankful, too, for the technology that allows us to live stream and for us to stay connected as, as um, poor of a substitute as it is for the real thing. I do think that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I've experienced that the past five months. I've really missed you. Um, and so this is something that I hope I will never take for granted again, the ability to gather. We've come to the end of the Mark series. You know, the earliest manuscripts end after verse 8 in chapter 16. Um, so this is what we feel confident is was in the original Mark text. If you're interested in understanding more about that, James preached on that on Easter Sunday, which was April 12th. If you want to go back and, and uh, listen to that sermon, uh, he, and he really explains well um, the rest of that chapter and what that means for us. But today, the sermon text goes through verse 8 of chapter 16, so we're going to be focused on what we feel is confident was in the original text of Mark. I want to thank those of you who've allowed me to reach out to you this week and poll you with the question, why did the resurrection need to happen? It's a question many of us haven't spent time thinking about. Thanks for your feedback. Those of you who um, I, I was able to, to pester with that question this week. But we don't spend a lot of time necessarily, as, I think, as Christians thinking about this why did the resurrection? We get the cross. Why the cross? We, Jesus had to pay for our sins. We can explain that, but if I ask you this morning, well, why did he need to resurrect? Why is that important? Sometimes we struggle to articulate that. I mean, it's nice. It's great. It's a cool ending to the story. It's kind of icing on the cake, maybe, is the way that we think about it. Um, in terms of the atonement, that th this victory at the end, the happy ending that we get in the resurrection... But was it important? Is it necessary to understand that why Christ resurrected? I think it is. Paul in 1 Corinthians made the case that if Jesus didn't resurrect, if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our hope in the atonement is actually futile. That the resurrection is actually very, very important. So I'm going to, hopefully that text will be on the screen. But I'm going to read this passage from 1 Corinthians now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? 
If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For the dead, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we of all people must be pitied. So Paul makes the case that the resurrection is absolutely, absolutely important. Um, in fact, it's a non-negotiable for the Christian. The resurrection is necessary, not, um, not as icing on the cake, but as foundational to our atonement. It's such an essential truth that if it's not true, then none of it's true. And we have no hope. So why? Why is the resurrection so important? Well, if... First of all, if Christ didn't resurrect in a physical form, then we have no hope that we will. We follow Jesus into death. I'm going to talk about this later, but Paul says that we carry with, uh, in our bodies the death of Christ. We follow Jesus into death. We all will die sooner or later. Paul says if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then there's no resurrection for us. Our hope in our resurrection is built on Christ's resurrection. In Romans, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn among brothers, many brothers. In Colossians, he uses that same word again, firstborn. He says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. So Adam was the firstborn into death, into sin and death. Jesus was the firstborn into life, eternal life. Incorruptible, eternal, glorified, resurrected body. In his resurrection, Jesus secured our pathway to resurrection. He forged the way like a pathfinder uh, finds the trail and marks the trail for other adventurers to follow. Jesus forged the way into resurrection. Secondly, his resurrection secured the death of death itself. On the cross, death lost its sting. We sang about that this morning, that Jesus conquered death. Its ability, the death's ability through sin to separate us from God. He killed that on the cross and in His resurrection. And Jesus, because Jesus did something that nobody had ever done before. He conquered death by undoing it, by making it untrue. He overcame death itself, securing death's future. And we know what that future is. If you read in Revelation 20, what's the future of death? Death is die, dies. That's the, the future of death is to be thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the future that death has coming for it. Friends, days, let me say this again. Death's days are numbered. It has an end date. It has an expiration date. One day, death will die permanently. It holds no power over those 
who belong to Jesus. Death has no power over you if you belong to Christ. If you've chosen to follow him, death is actually gain for you. The worst that it can do is usher you into the presence of the Lord. So the sting of death is gone. The power of death has been stolen. Jesus conquered it in his resurrection. And how important is it for us to remember that right now? Some of us are here this morning, we're wearing masks. We're socially distanced. Why? Because we want to be careful. We want to be careful. This virus is dangerous. It takes people. So we're being careful. Some of you are at home this morning because you want to protect yourself and your loved ones from the virus. And that's being a good neighbor. Being socially, as hard as it is, wearing a mask, being socially distanced, that's being a good neighbor. We should be careful. But in our carefulness, we can't be ruled by fear. Even in the worst case scenario, if I get this virus and die, which is a possibility, I will go to be with the Lord and await my virus-proof body. So while we're, we need to be careful to protect each other, let's do that. Let's set a, a, a great precedent for our city and a great example for our neighbors in our carefulness. We must also be bold to preach to others, to each other, and to our neighbors the ultimate cure for COVID-19. An eternal, incorruptible existence with Jesus. That's our hope. That's what we cling to. Not this flesh, not this body. This body will die one way or another. From a virus, from cancer 80 years from now, hit by a bus, I don't know. But it will pass away at some point. But this is not my hope. Your body is not your hope. Your flesh is not where your hope should lie. Third, and in a practical sense, the resurrection was God's public vindication of Christ and his revelation of Jesus' true identity. Think about it. Without the resurrection, how could we confidently say that Jesus was who he claimed to be? The resurrection of Christ was his public declaration of victory. As we'll see in this text, there were human witnesses to it. People who, wit who were witnesses to Christ in his resurrected state. He appeared to many followers in the flesh before he ascended to heaven. God left no room for doubt that Jesus secured our salvation. He made a public spectacle of it, actually. And so, like Paul said, if the resurrection didn't happen, then Jesus wasn't vindicated. We have no evidence that the atonement was sufficient and our faith is futile. But he did rise. We weren't able to gather in person on Easter to say this, so I'd like to do it now. Let's pause to just celebrate the resurrection. Christ is risen. <laughs> he is risen indeed. Amen. So let's look at Mark's account of the burial and resurrection. Let's look at these, some of these witnesses who were there. In verse 40, we see that some of Jesus' followers witnessed his death. Mark mentions three women in particular, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and 
Salome. These women uh, who'd been following, it says, Mark says they'd been following Jesus in his ministry. They've been following around. So she, they're part of the larger entourage of Jesus' followers who've been following around. And not just following them around, but ministering to Jesus. They've been doing more than just, they were more than just bystanders to Jesus' ministry. They are actually serving Jesus and ministering to him throughout his ministry. And it says from Galilee to Jerusalem. So they had been with his ministry for a very long time, from the beginning, following him and ministering to him along the way. They were probably women who had some money uh, and were also financial supporters of his ministry too. So these, are, these women were very important to Jesus' ministry and probably very close to friends of his. And here they were watching the crucifixion from afar. No doubt in mourning, sad, devastated by the execution of their leader, of the man that they followed and loved. And then in verse 47, we see that the two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the mother of James, were also witnesses to his burial. Mark says that when he's buried, uh, they, sorry, it says that they saw where he was buried, meaning that they were probably standing far off, or, but they were able to see where Jesus was buried. So it's implied that they're, they're watching from a distance, but they, they, they were frightened, they were distraught, they were confused, but they were sticking by Jesus in that moment and in that state. Then in chapter 16, these three women were also the first ones to the tomb. And they found that Jesus had risen. So they're the first witnesses to the resurrection. They went to anoint him with spices, and you've got to love that, that these women who had been ministering to Jesus throughout his ministry wanted to continue to do that even in his death. That they went to go minister to him and to his, to his body in his death. And they weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath. So that's why they came on Sunday morning. It's first thing in the morning on Sunday morning when they had light and they could do it. Um, they went to the, to the tomb to go minister to Jesus. And they wonder along the way, who's going to roll the stone away for us? And they don't realize that Jesus has already answered that. That's already happened. That, you know, they're wondering, how is this going to happen? No, it's already happened. The question's already been answered. So there they meet an angel. Mark calls him a young man dressed in white who informed them that Jesus had risen and was going before them to Galilee. Their response, understandably, is to be frightened. A, a lot of uh, ink has been spilled on the, the apparent contradiction of Mark and the other Gospels in the response of these women. Mark says that they were frightened and they didn't tell anybody. And the other Gospels say that they did go tell everybody. And that's a pretty easy contradiction to overcome. They were frightened at first. <laughs> and they didn't tell anybody at first. But eventually they did. They overcame that fright. We know from the other Gospels that they did. But they didn't intend when they left to say anything to anybody because they were scared. They ended up, by the way, and we know from other Gospels, coming across Jesus himself. Um, and so they, they end up being witnesses to the resurrected body of Christ. Mary Magdalene, in fact, uh, had the distinct honor of being the first of Jesus' followers to see him post-resurrection. But the, early the earliest manuscripts of Mark kind of leave us hanging here. They just say the women were afraid of telling anybody. 
what they had seen, the end. Mark also mentions another name in this passage, Joseph of Arimathea. Mark actually tells us a great deal about Joseph in one verse. You learn a lot about Joseph, who Joseph was in one verse. Verse 43 says, Joseph was a respected member of the council. That means the Sanhedrin. So he was a man of power and of influence. And Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. So it's an implied, implied here that he was an admirer of Jesus, if not a secret follower of Jesus. And he was courageous. It says he took courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. This would have been a bold move for somebody in the Sanhedrin, a member of the council that convicted Jesus and sought his crucifixion to be the one to go claim his body. So Mark rightly calls him courageous here. Besides the brazenness and the boldness of going to Pilate and saying, asking for the body of a convicted criminal, which would have carried maybe some of its own risks, the bigger risk for him was, what is the Sanhedrin going to, how, how would they respond to this? Him asking to honor and venerate the person that they had convicted. So he's brazenly here standing against the actions of the Sanhedrin. And we learn from other Gospels that he, didn't, that he was a dissenting voice in the Sanhedrin. If not publicly, then privately. Um, uh, standing against what they had done to Jesus. So doing this, taking the body of Jesus, had the potential to destroy his reputation with his peers on the council, or even worse. Once Pilate confirms that Jesus is dead through the, through the uh, centurion soldier, uh, he allows Joseph to take the body for burial. And it had to happen really quickly because the Sabbath was coming. Night, nightfall was coming, which is the beginning of the Sabbath. Um, so Joseph quickly buys a linen shroud, wraps Jesus in it, lays him in the tomb. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that that tomb was in fact Joseph's own tomb. Now, notice though who's absent who Mark doesn't mention at all in these verses. Where are the disciples? They're gone. They're hiding. They're not even mentioned until the very end in verse 8 when the angel, or maybe it's verse 7, when the angel tells the women, go tell the disciples. Why? Because they're not here. (laughs) They're gone. They're they're hiding. We don't know what's happened to them at this point. They've taken off. The last reference we get before this to disciples is when Peter denies Christ three times. And then the last thing we see him doing is weeping in shame. So the women were dutifully ministering to Jesus in his death, in their fear, in their timidness. Joseph of Arimathea boldly taking a stance against the Sanhedrin and asking for the body of Jesus. And then we have the disciples, absent, gone, frightened, scared. The 11 men, dismissing Judas, of course, who knew Jesus best, were gone, scattered. Which of these do you identify with? The bold follower stepping out in faith? The timid follower? Frightened, but following Jesus? The one who's running from him, 
shamed, scared. Probably all three at various times in your life. Maybe various times in a given week. There have been times when I've been afraid um, and identified probably most with the disciples here. Running from the Lord, running from my faith, hiding in shame. Not bringing those fears or that shame to him, but running from him. More recently, in the past five months, I've probably been more like the women, timid, fearful, following, but scared. And maybe slow to respond to the call of Jesus like they are in verse 8. Fear is a powerful emotion. What are you most afraid of? Financial turmoil? Sickness? Death? Losing a loved one? You can learn a lot about yourself when you look at your fear. Our hopes and fears are two sides of the same coin, aren't they? What you're afraid of reveals what you're putting your hope in. Some of you are worried about the economy. What's COVID going to do to the stock market, to the world economy, to my business, to my job security? You put your hope in the dollar, in your ability to provide for your family through the strength of the American economy, profit margins, 401ks, nest eggs. Some of you are fearful about what's going to happen or not happen in this next election. Can either of these two main candidates lead our country through all these things that we're going through right now? All signs point to no, by the way. <laughs> Can Congress find a way to work together, accomplish something? Can we get past our political differences? Can we find some common ground? What's this next election mean for fill in the blank? Social justice, pandemic response, the Supreme Court, abortion. What does it mean? We've put our hope in the American system, the political party, human institutions. Other of you are afraid of the government, <laughs> afraid of the government's response, afraid of overreach, expansion of powers that's been happening, especially during COVID. Just this week, the Supreme Court ruled that states have the right to tell churches how they can worship. That's a scary precedent. Hopefully it doesn't extend beyond pandemic response, but there's a possibility. That's scary. When you flip that fear coin over, what's the hope that you're putting your, uh, what's the thing you're putting your hope in on the other side of that? Liberty, religious freedoms, self-determination. Okay, confession. Those three were my examples. <laughs> Those are the things that I've been scared of. Those are the things that I've been putting my hope in. What are your fears? I encourage you to spend some time considering those fears and the hopes that they're pointing to. Money, politics, liberty, those aren't bad things in and of themselves, but they make lousy saviors. Most of the desires that those hopes are built on are actually not bad. Security, freedom, those aren't bad desires. In fact, I think the Lord puts those desires on our hearts. I desire security. I desire freedom. 
Where do I find that? Do I find it in elections? Or in my bank account? That's the problem. It's not the desire itself. It's where I've pinned my hopes. Those, those desires come from the Lord, and only the Lord can fulfill them. At times, I've just been looking for fulfillment of those desires in very, very poor Jesus substitutes. Last weekend, the elders had an in-town retreat. We spent some time meditating on 2 Corinthians 4. I'd like to turn there now. Um, it'll be on the screen as I read it. I'll be starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The jars of clay is our bodies. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And lastly, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen, eternal. This affliction, whatever you're struggling with right now, may not feel light or momentary. And Paul isn't being dismissive here. He's not saying, suck it up, get over it, move on, you pansies. This is Paul not being dismissive, but taking an eternal viewpoint. Look what he says in verse 17. It's not, not that what you're dealing with is small potatoes. It's a matter of scale. When we compare 2020 and all of its insanity, and it's not over yet, to the eternal weight of glory, it's going to look small. 2020 is going to look awfully small compared to eternity. When we're in our new resurrection bodies, singing worship songs to Jesus in person. No masks, no social distance, lots of hugs. Enjoying the company of each other and our Lord. 2020 and whatever hardships it brings are going to look like a distant memory. We know from the other gospel accounts to finish the story of the disciples. We know from the other gospel accounts that they didn't, their story doesn't end with them cowering in rooms together. Denying that they knew Jesus. Crying in shame, like Peter. That moment of weakness and shame was overturned by the resurrected Jesus. 
What did he do? He went to Galilee. Why? Because they went to Galilee. He goes after them. He goes from the tomb to Galilee to track them down and restore them himself. Their weakness and shame could not compete with the risen Lord. And neither can yours. Neither can mine. The victory of Jesus over sin and death is far more powerful than your struggles. And the hope of the resurrection is far bigger than your fears. Let's keep that in mind as we continue to worship this morning and ask the band to come back up. Let's keep that in mind that the resurrection is far bigger than what I'm fearing and the shame of that fear. Take that shame or that fear to Jesus. Take it to the cross. He's big enough to handle it. And we're not. (laughs) That's why we take it to Him.